Good. Um, so last week, we started a, um, a dip into the first epistle of John. Okay, so if you've got your Bible, your tablet, or your, um, your mobile device, whatever that is, there's so many different variations now, just turn to, turn to 1 John. I just keep it open. Uh, last week, we looked at the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter. And so this time, we're going to delve into the second half of chapter two. And last week, I had a snappy little title. Couldn't get one so snappy this week. Um, anybody remember what it was? <laughs> Who was here last week? It was a little test. Open doors? Um, no, John. <laughs> Trying to think of an encouragement there, but I can't think of one. <laughs> Emma. Last week, yeah. Coming out as a Christian. Just turn, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm coming out as a Christian. <laughs> you don't seem very convinced about it. <laughs> Are you coming out as a Christian? Have you already come out as a Christian? And is God, God wanting you to come out more as a Christian? Okay. I think it's, it's not just clever, actually. This, there's something around the same-sex debate where, you know, that, that, that has kind of stolen some of our language. I mean, typical, typical that would be the word gay, wouldn't it? But the whole concept of, I'm unashamed to tell you who I am. It's not just something that's been done by other people. It's something that we need to do as Christians. And actually what John is addressing is something, you know, just deep in our hearts. So on one level, this is a talk about evangelism, because most of what I do is kind of driven in that, in that direction. But fundamentally, it's about what's going on inside of you. And the reality was that in the churches that John is addressing, and this is probably towards the end of, of the first century, it's probably thought that, you know, this is John's... The writer of John's Gospel, you probably never doubted this anyway, it's just liberal theologians who are like this. Uh, the writer of John's Gospel, of course, is the writer of one John. And John probably writes his Gospel a little bit later than Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke. And then one John comes even a little bit later. And by that time, it's almost like the church is into its you know, uh, second generation, at least into its second generation. So 30 years you know, 60 AD, probably John and 1 John written between 80 and 90 AD. Uh, that's enough time, isn't it, for, um, for change to, to take place in the churches. And sadly, what John is addressing here is a lot of uncertain Christians. Okay? Ever been uncertain about your faith? Well, most of us probably have, if we're honest. But John is writing, and, and, and actually they have been upset probably by a group of people that John addresses both a kind of false teachers or false prophets or even antichrists. Now, this is antichrist with a small a, by the way, not the big a, um, but I'll come to that later. They've been upset by some false teachers who have demonstrated that they're false by leaving these churches. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> But what they've left, it should be hallowed. I mean, they, sometimes people are a problem, aren't they? The New Testament's quite straight about it. And none of us want division. None of us want people to leave the church. But actually, if you are persistently teaching false stuff, it's maybe good that you leave. I'm not addressing anybody here, by the way. (laughs) 
But that is the situation. And, and John says they were false teachers. We know that because they have left us. It's not they couldn't stay around the truth. But in the meantime, they've unsettled a lot of Christians. And John writes his letter really to reassure them about their faith. So if you turn to chapter 5 and verse 13, here's, here's John giving you his clue to why he's writing. He says, I write, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this, this isn't just encouraging them to be better believers in eternal life. If you know you have eternal life, you have a certainty about your faith, don't you? It seems incredibly arrogant in our culture, doesn't it? Have you ever tried this? you ever walked into the office or the or place where you work and said, I am going to heaven. Anybody want to join me? I don't have to say that where I work because they're all going to heaven. You know, so no. <laughs> that's an incredible, you know, I mean, that's an, a huge statement, isn't it? In our society. In fact, certainty about anything is deemed to be arrogant. It's a strange turn of affairs, isn't it? That if you express certainty, especially about anything vaguely religious, you will be deemed to be arrogant. Don't always lead to God. Well, no, they don't. As I read once, you know, after thousands of years, if always we lead to God, lead to God, why haven't some of them arrived? And a lot of them don't claim, don't make the sort of outrageous claims that Jesus made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the defining reality of everything. Everything was made through me, through me, and for me. That's Jesus. And some of us have asked Jesus to be our friend. We've just asked the most arrogant man who ever walked this planet to be our close and personal friend. How on earth do you put up with him? Or, for that matter, how on earth does he put up with us? (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is arrogant, but no wonder they... I mean, Jesus was so outrageous in what he claimed that people wanted to stone him to death. It's almost like when you read the Gospels, isn't it? Jesus is almost like staving off the day when he's going to die. After the first sermon he ever preached, this is a great encouragement for anybody who's a preacher, they want to throw him over a cliff. How did the sermon go today? Oh, I'm not really sure, but they just wanted to kill me at the end. Goes into the synagogue of, of, uh, you know, um, Nazareth, reads out Isaiah 61, so never preach on Isaiah 61 unless you want to die. But that's not the message of that. But, uh, you know, they want to kill him. Why? Because he said that on this day, the scripture has been fulfilled. What God has promised, the Messiah who's been promised in those verses, he has now arrived. You can't do that. So take him out and kill him. He's just blasphemed. Jesus is certain about who he is. He wants you to be certain about what you believe in him so that you can be so certain you can simply come out as a Christian at any moment. 
at any time, in any place. As Fiona Gilpin, who leads the evangelism, says we need to be martini Christians. Any time, any place, anywhere. Actually, you carry your Christianity around with you, don't you, all the time. And yet, the Christians in, in 1 John were uncertain about their faith. Well, let's have a look about why they were uncertain about their faith. So if you go back to chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 15. After John has just encouraged them, the young men, the old men, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the church, or what she calls dear children, the young believers, he says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can you say that? The love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Before we turn to that, let me just read you a story. Um, A boastful American was being shown the sights by a London taxi driver. What's that building up there, asked the American. That's the Tower of London, sir, replied the taxi driver. Say, we can put up buildings like that in two weeks, drawled the Texan. A little while later, he said, and what's that building we're passing now? That's Buckingham Palace, sir, where the Queen lives. Is that so, said the Texan. Do you know, back in Texas, we can put a place like that up, like that, up in a week. A few minutes later, they were passing Westminster Abbey. The American asked again, hey, cabbie, what's that building over there? Uh, I'm afraid I don't know, sir, replied the taxi driver. It wasn't there this morning. Boasting is one of the ways that you could be worldly. That's why I wanted to get that story in there. I was going to show, tell it the first and I realized I, I left it behind. Um, the love of the father is not in him. One of the ways you could be certain about your Christianity is simply this. You know you are loved. It's desperately simple, so desperately simple it's easy to miss, isn't it? Do you know the love of the Father? And and Paul, get Paul. John, I like preaching for Paul, so he pops in every now and again. John gives three tests that, you know, give you some idea of what it's like to be more in love with the world than in love with the Father. Okay? What are those three tests? He says in verse 16, For everything in the world... The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So here's the idea. If my certainty in my faith is based on my, the love that I have received from the Father and consequently the love that I have from the Father... Are there, is there anything in my life that challenges that? The cravings of the sinful man, what on earth are they? Well, they could be all sorts of things, couldn't they? And in days gone past, I would be saying to you, don't go to the disco, don't go to the disco, don't go to the pub, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. And I would have given you a list, maybe, of things that you shouldn't do. Now notice, uh, and then... uh, What that tends to do is create a terribly legalistic kind of Christianity, doesn't it? 
Notice that John doesn't do that. It's not because he's just doing a summary. But actually, the cravings of the sinful nature, the things that challenge the love of the Father in you, you should be able to tell. So it's not going into a pub that it's wrong, but it might be what you do in that pub that could lead you into sin. By the way, merely drinking alcohol is not sinful. Hallelujah. That's another older form of Christianity, isn't it? But if you drink too much of it, then, you know, that can lead to drunkenness and that can lead to all kinds of problems in your life. So here's the deal. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and then you work out how far or how much is appropriate for you. And nobody can tell you really how much to drink, can you? Depends how big you are, how much you are, how much you've eaten. But you know in your spirit where, 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 if you like, you tip over that point. So why go there? In other words, it's much more to do with your heart reaction to things than it is to the outward expression of those particular sins. So John, very wisely here, doesn't give you a list, a kind of not-to-do list. Although there are plenty of things that are very explicit, so let me just suggest to you that murder is off your, you know, it's not on your list of things to do. Actually, neither is hating people, because those things are very clear and explicit. Sex before or outside of marriage, very explicitly wrong, so don't go there. But there may be things, and this is the second category, isn't it? The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes. Why does Paul... Isolate the problem with your your eyes. It's because your eyes can lead you into trouble, can't they? The things that you dwell on, the things that you look on, if they start to create the right, wrong kind of attitudes inside you. And again, you know, this will vary from a person to a person. So John, very wisely, isn't giving you a list of the things that you can't look at or dwell on. The type of television programs. In fact, I'm on a mission to get people to watch television more often than... uh, (laughs) than they used to. You know, pastors, when I was growing up, said, don't watch your television, you should be reading your Bible. Now I'm telling you, read the, read, watch television because you're not in contact with your community, unless you are. Now, this is not a license to just stop, you know, fold, uh, close your Bible or not. But however, however, the principle behind that is be in, you know, be connected what's going on around you. Just keep in contact with the community. Don't cut yourselves off, however you do that. But anyway... Just check out with your eyes, what is it you're dwelling on? What is it that might lead you into sin? And avoid those things. They, and, and just ask yourself, is this challenging my love for the Father? And your love for the Father isn't, neither is it measured by how much you read your Bible, or how much you pray, or how many meetings you go to at church. Is it? Just not if you agree. Some of you are looking rather puzzled. What's he about to say next? How do you measure? Well, I'm not sure that there is a measure of the love of the Father in your heart, isn't it? But you know when you've got it. You know when, here's a few telltale signs. You know that you're completely forgiven. You know that you're completely accepted. You know that you're going to heaven. You have an assurance in your heart. In fact, that's what John is driving at in this whole letter. I want you to be absolutely certain. 
And so avoid the things in the world. Don't let your love, you know, don't fall in love with the world. What's the other thing that he says? The other third category. The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Now again, John isn't giving you a list. You've got to test this out in the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives you. Test out, do the things that I have, my material possessions, or the things that I do, more important than my love for the Father, or the love of the Father within me. Is my identity, and here we are again on the message that we that I love, and that's become almost like a, a hallmark, really, of one of the hallmarks of being here at Eastgate, is who you are more important than what you do? Is, you, is your being the thing that you start with rather than your doing? Does your doing flow out of who you are, or are you trying to shape yourself by what you do? At its extreme... You know, a workaholic is somebody who is trying to find their significance, their deep inner kind of relationship with the things that they do, not simply who they are. You see, your salvation primarily is about who you are. So if you do nothing, I mean, when the thief on the cross dies, has he got any time to do any good works? No, he hasn't. But where's he going? Heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. But surely, Lord, you can't just be, I mean, he must have led a really sinful life all his life. And now he's dying. And, you know, he's, he's the first to admit that he deserves his punishment. But he responds to Jesus in an instant. He's in heaven. That's just not fair, is it? What about all those nice people like you and me who slog our guts out, going to church, praying, being nice? And we walk through the same gate that he does. Just, I mean, think of the worst person in the world that you know of. You're going to be happy for they get saved on their deathbed. What? I went to church for 50 years. I did the School of Supernatural Ministry for three years. I read my Bible five, six, I don't know how many times from... Genesis through the revelation. And he's walking through the same gate of eternal life as me. How's that work? That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Everybody happy? That's how you got in. You're getting in exactly in the same way as he did. Through faith in Jesus. Simply repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus who has done it all for you. Who didn't deserve to die, but died for you. Who died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and you have died with him, risen again and ascended into heaven, purely by faith. It's all by grace and all by faith. That's how you got in. So check those things out in your life. Let the Holy Spirit. And then he says, finally in verse 17, it says the world, finally in this section, by the way, (laughs) just in case you thought, finally, it's all over. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So out of this love that the Father has for you and you have for the Father, then you are, you know, that's where your assurance, this idea that you're going to live forever comes from. What else does he say? What other threats are there to your relationship with the Father? Well, let's quickly look at those. If we look in the next few verses. Dear children... 
This is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. So here we are. It's a little bit of biblical doctrine. There are many Antichrists. Simply this. How do you define an Antichrist? Somebody who is Antichrist. There is a biblical prophecy about, you know, finally, and if you like, capital A, Antichrist emerging. We haven't got time to talk about that. But here's John saying, you know, that has been prophesied, but there are many people before you get there. There are many Antichrists. But hallelujah, don't panic, because Jesus prophesied that this would happen. You ever taken encouragement from bad things? You know, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, hallelujah, God just fulfilled a promise, a prophecy. Now, that doesn't mean you're delighting in that, and scripture isn't asking you to delight in people who are anti-Christ, but don't panic. Ah, God said that would happen. That's reassuring, isn't it? That's reassuring. It's not that you want those things to happen, but it's reassuring. And so John, in a sense, is saying, don't panic. This is what it was supposed to happen. This is how we know it's the last hour. The last hour here isn't literally John's time or in that year. Uh, this, this phrase can actually mean simply the last times, which we are still in, by the way, folks. We are still in the last times, this era of, you know, God's grace. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. There's that reference. For if, you had be- if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So there's two threats here to your relationship with the Father. One is people who are Antichrist, and and, and the second is the things that they believe. What does John tell us about the things that these people who who went out for them You know, it is, in verse 22, it is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, very briefly, what was going on in 1 John, if you remember anything from from last week, was that the the heresy or the false teaching probably was the early forms of something called Gnosticism. Don't be confused by that. Gnosticism is simply the word gnosis, which means knowledge. So these were the really knowledgeable ones in fact what they were going around saying is you know all that stuff about jesus well that's okay but what you really need is the secret knowledge you ever come christians like i mean there are sometimes christians who drive you up the wall don't they i know something that you don't know how how come because it's all plainly revealed the mystery of the gospel is plainly revealed there's a sense in which the mystery that the new testament talks about is plainly revealed it can be understood jesus came from the father to us to save us he died he rose he ascended into heaven it's plainly revealed the mystery hidden for angels has plainly been revealed by the time though that the church has got into the second generation there are people going around saying yeah brother but what you really need is the secret knowledge And if you haven't got the secret knowledge, well, um, you know, 
There are different levels in heaven, and you might just about get in on the bottom rung, but some of us will be higher up. Okay, and probably into the second century, Gnosticism really emerges, you know, fully formed, and the Gnostics, you know, are, are, are very clearly a heretical belief. And here in 1 John, John is probably tackling the early stages of that. Here were people saying that Jesus wasn't the Christ. He wasn't, you know, he couldn't possibly have come in human form. Why? Because human form is evil. Bad. Spirit good, material bad. So how can Jesus, who's a spiritual being, inhabit a physical evil being? Are you with it so far? Yeah, this is weird to us. In other words, if you want to apply that today, anybody who doesn't really believe the right things about Jesus really isn't going to help you, is he? Or she? And here's, here's the thought. So what, what John is saying is, to be sure about your faith, be sure about what you believe. Now, in a church like ours, ours we encourage people to encounter Jesus. And we love you having experiences of God. We love you lying, where it's lying on the floor, shaking, rattling, or rolling. We love it when you're encountering the Father. When peace, you know, you, maybe, you're, maybe you're a quiet encountering person. Maybe you're a noisy encountering person. It doesn't matter. There's, there's, there's you know, a whole range of ways. You know, as, as somebody said to John Wimber once when somebody was bouncing around at the back of the room, is that the Holy Spirit? He said, I don't know. But that's, that, that's that, that person's response to the Holy Spirit. And we all have different responses, physical, spiritual, mental to, to God. But here's, here's the idea too. It is still important that you have both devotion but also good doctrine. And that's what John's getting at here. If you like, the Gnostics were the kind of, you know, encountering people and not actually bothered about what you believe. Because it's as long as you've got the secret knowledge, the secret experience, as long as you've had the sort of encounter, as they described it, not suggest, suggesting that, you know, they were having good encounters necessarily. But they were actually ignoring doctrine, by which I mean, you know, the things that are the truth, that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus was both fully God and fully human. Why is it important to believe that? Why? Because it's true. <laughs> and it's, it's actually essential for our salvation. Only a perfect man can die in the place of sinful human beings like us. Only a man who is God can actually be raised again from the dead like Jesus was. So it's essential that we believe both in the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. In his full humanity, he identifies completely with us and yet without sin. In his full divinity, he is powerful. He can overcome death. He can be the supernatural God that he is. So it's, a, it's vitally important that we both encounter God but also have Good doctrine. Just true biblical belief. Okay, you can see it, feel the passion of the teacher coming out of me, hopefully. Lastly, he does this. Let's look at the last bit where he says, See that you have heard from the beginning, verse 24, remains, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is what he has promised us, even eternal life. What's the point there? How do you have this certainty? Just stay in what you believe. Stay in the word of God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. How do you get certainty in your faith? Keep reading the Bible. It's kind of as simple as that. I remember a friend of mine, we were doing the watching up. He was a young Christian. He said, how can I grow as a Christian? I said, I thought I must come out with some really great answer here, but I can't think what it is. So I simply said to him, just keep reading your Bible and do what it says. That's still good advice, isn't it? Keep feeding this faith that you have. That's one of your roots into certainty in your faith. And God wants you to be certain in your faith. Verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. Oh, there's a good verse. You don't need anybody to teach you. Oh, well, there you go. You can all go home now. Why do we have teaching? You don't need anybody to teach you. (laughs) But as his anointing teaches you about all things, say with me, all things. So this, this thing called the anointing teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, like the false teachers, just as it has taught you, remain in him. You have the best teacher in the world. Here at Eastgate. He turns up every week. He preaches in every service. Now there, that's a giveaway. So it's obviously not me or Pete or or the other dear people that preach here. Why can John, actually now John is overemphasizing a point here. He, he, you know, he is doing teaching for his letter. So he's not literally saying you don't need any teachers. However, he wants to emphasize you have the Holy Spirit. Augustine said this, he said, my words lead my mouth and they hit your ears. But the real teacher is within you. The anointing that you have is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And your best teacher, seriously, is the Holy Spirit. So make sure that you have a relationship. And so not only do you need the Word of God, you need the Spirit of God. You need Word and Spirit. You need Spirit and Word working in your life. And John's saying, you know, it's not a question of that secret knowledge. You have got it already. If you have the Holy Spirit, in fact, he's even, you know, made a play on words here for the word anointing is is chrism, which is a reference to Christ called the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. The Holy Spirit is the anointing. So the Holy Spirit brings Christ, who is truly God and truly man, in your life. They are teaching you every day if you are listening. So please, I, I've tried to make it a practice over the years. When you open your Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. As you're walking down the street, ask the Holy Spirit to keep your ears open and listen to what he's saying to you. He's a great, great teacher. He's the comforter, the, you know, the advocate, the counselor. No, he's the, he's the promised one. He's another Christ to you. 
He brings Christ to you, but he's, you know, he's the paraclete, the one that draws alongside you. You know, just as Jesus, you know, so Jesus didn't leave the earth. Well, of course he did, but he made sure that he was still here. Must have been terribly, terribly disappointed with the disciples, isn't it? Jesus is going up to heaven. What are we going to do? No, you, I will send, stay in Jerusalem. I will send somebody just like me. And that just like me is with you now. You have the Holy Spirit. He's teaching you every day. That's, that's the, that will bring you such certainty, won't it? As you read the word of God, as you are friends with the Holy Spirit, he will keep speaking to you about the Father's love. And there you have it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As John says, if you deny the Son, you also deny the Father. But of course, the flip side of that is true. If you, if you acknowledge the Son and love the Son, then you re, you'll receive and love the Father by his Spirit. He wants you to remain in him and remain in that anointing. And then finally, he says this. And now, dear children, verse 28, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How do you know this certainty? Look at what's changed in your life. This is a strange idea to us, isn't it? So because we preach that we are saved by faith and not by works, which is absolutely true, we often miss the idea that one of the, one of the things that can give us assurance of our faith is actually our own actions. Look at me. I've just helped somebody. That's a sign of how I've changed. Look at me. I'm concerned about sin. That's because I've changed. Look at me. I want to challenge the injustices in the world and do something about it. Why does that keep coming up inside of me? That's because that's that's there to assure you of your faith. As I said last week, the Salvation Army lass who got converted in the Victorian area, how does she know she'd become a Christian? Because she didn't sweep the dust under the carpet anymore. Simple little action, isn't it? But that assured her something has changed. What is it that you do already that is a mark of your faith? Please don't fall into the trap that, well, you know, if only I... And this is typical of us, isn't it? Pretty, it's an English thing to do. Well, yeah, but I could have done it better. I helped one person, but I could have helped two. Guys, that, that's, that, that's a route to nowhere. It doesn't do you any good to think like that. Rejoice in what God, how God has changed you already. We all know... There's more to do. We all know there are more good works to do. We all know we're being changed from one degree of glory for another. But you're already glorious. And we think somehow that it's wrong to kind of rejoice in the good things that we do, even though we acknowledge that God has done them in our lives. (laughs) We're such idiots sometimes, aren't we? You know, if we can just, if we could just kill off false humility in our lives, we'd be so much better for it. Please write a prescription to yourself right now. I'm going to kill off false humility. 
Now, this isn't a prescription for you to go around boasting about what you do, but it is a prescription for confidence in what God has done in you. Yes, through his cross and all the things that Jesus did, but if God is making you a better person, if there are good works you have already done, they are there to assure you of the change that has taken place inside you. Put your hand on your heart. Say, I am a good person. I am a very good person. I'm full of Jesus. I love walking in his ways. There are more good works for me to do. But those I've already done, they assure me of my faith. Come on. Are you ready to come out as a Christian? Are you more certain now than when you came in? Maybe. <laughs> I hope so. Let's, let's just stand, shall we? I was asking the Holy Spirit, well, okay, Lord, how are we going to end this? <laughs> One of the ways that you know you're a Christian, for sure, is that the Holy Spirit has come into your life and cried, Abba, Father, into your heart. And your spirit has cried, Abba, Father, back to him. It's something that will happen to you when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. If that phrase is unusual to you, if you think, well, I've, I've, never, I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has never cried. I've never had that deep feeling of the Father's heart in my life. Now, I want to invite you tonight to come and receive that. It's not something you attain to. It's actually where you start. The Holy Spirit comes and invades your life. And not only forgives your sins, although he does. Not only begins to transform your character, but he does. But fundamentally makes you a child of God and will cry, Abba, Father, into your spirit. So that you have the love of the Father deep within you. And... And this is so important to receive, folks. I'm going to invite you to actually come out. And we, I want, want to pray for anybody who, A, wants to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time in that way. Or somehow, and this can happen, somehow you have just wandered away from the Father. You know that your Christianity has become a list of do's and don'ts or just behavior. And although behavior is a fruit, good behavior is a fruit of what's going on inside Nonetheless, you know, you've drifted away from that father relationship. You haven't got that settled belief. I am loved by God. He's my dad. He's Abba Father to me. And if I die tonight, I stand before him, you know, blameless, holy and blameless before him, loved by God. So if A, you would like to receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Holy Spirit for the first time, just come up here. We're going to pray for you or just stay behind afterwards. If you would like to just reconnect with the Father yourself, then I'm going to invite you to do that. So just come forward and we'll pray for you if you want to do that. Are you happy to do that now?